do verses 33 to 38. So not a whole lot of verses. However, I kind of go on a wee tangent, but I think it's important. And I'm going to apologize for it beforehand. It, it, it is a little bit of Christianity 101 this morning, uh, which is cool, I think, as well, um, to do Christianity 101 from time to time. Um, but you'll see as we, as we unfold and as we get there. But first slide, if we can get there, I'm going to deal with a bit of a review, what we've already dealt with and talked about before we got to what we are just now. Um, if you remember this chart, I brought this up, and I just kind of want to bring it to your attention one more time to look at what religion has to offer. And this is kind of what the Pharisees were dealing out, and this is why Jesus called them, you know, these things that the, that the Pharisees have to offer is woes. They're woes. They're miserable. <laughs> and so what the religion, like the Pharisees, had to offer, they are woes. Woes produced by miserable making of obstructions, disciples, oaths, priorities, you know, cleansings, righteousness, delusions. These are the things that we looked at, you know. They were putting things in the way, obstructions. They were, they're making disciples upon themselves, followers of people, not followers of Christ or followers of God. They were making these oaths, these, these bogus oaths, which are basically just lying, really. Um, their priorities were off. They were putting important things off. Um, they were outwardly clean. So they appeared, it looks like they were all right, but inwardly they were dirty. They were not right. And then, of course, the righteousness, religious human efforts. And we're going to look more about that this morning, religious or human efforts. And that's what they have to offer. And these things are, not only are they miserable, but they ultimately end in number seven, delusions, false beliefs about self and reality. But what does Christ have to offer? And I compare this with Matthew 5, 3 to 12, which is called the, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are like this. Blessings for disciples. Because, or hate. Because of what Christ has to offer, what God has for you. So we're blessed because of what God has done for us. And we're looking a lot more at that this morning, in fact. Because I think religion says, what do I do? And what do I have to offer for myself? And what have I accomplished? But Christ's disciples bathe in blessings. <laughs> they receive blessings, not because of what they have done, but what God has done for them. So poor in spirit, is that who you are? Is that who we are? Yeah, probably. But you know, it's okay because God's kingdom is for us. Mourners, comforted, meek, will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Why? Because this is what God has to offer us. Satisfaction, an inheritance, comfort, the kingdom of heaven. Those who are merciful will receive mercy. Pure in heart will see God. Peacemakers call children. Do you see the qualitative difference between the two lists here? You know what I'm saying? One is just, it's quite loathsome. <laughs> While the other list here, the list that God has to offer, is wonderful. It's truly a blessing. That's what Christ has to offer. Next slide, please. So again, in, in review, we're going we're gonna to rewind a wee bit and look at verses 30 32. And it says this. This is to kind of go in to where we are today. If you say we, or you say we have, if we have lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not taken part 
with them in shedding of the blood of your prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what you have started, or what your ancestors started. And of course, I put a picture of the, of the cross there, and Christ on the cross, because that is basically what is going to happen very soon. This is the last week, it's the Passion Week, if you will. This is days before Jesus died on the cross. And he knows into the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious people that they're going to reject not just prophets, but the prophet, the Messiah himself. And of course, we have a picture of what has happened. And this is what Jesus is talking about here in Second Chronicles 36. And this here is, is the fall of Jerusalem. It says this, The Lord of the God of their ancestors sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people. Again, through these scriptures we're going to see today, we're going to see how, how, how God's heart breaks for Jerusalem, how God's heart breaks for his people, how he, he just, he, he's just he's so sad about their disobedience, their rebellion, their turning away from him constantly. And it's so gross that they literally are killing God's messengers. That's what we see here. They mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. There gets to a point where there is no remedy. I think of the, the story of, um, of the Pharaoh in, in, the, in, the, in the, the plagues upon Pharaoh when God asked to let his people go and use Moses. And how, how at first Moses hardened his heart, but then near the end we see that God starts to harden his heart. It gets to a point where there's just no return, no remedy. And that is really a sad, sad thought. But we need to be careful. These people here who are facing Jesus have a chance to repent and meet their Messiah, but they're not going to. Because again, the hardness of the heart. He brought them up against, or brought up against them, the king of the Babylons. And then, of course, I tagged on Proverbs 16, 18 to this, a verse that they should know as a part of their teachings. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So there's some context, there's some historical context. There is what Jesus is dealing with right here. He's dealing with the Pharisees and their religiosity. He's dealing with their disobedience against God and their bloodshed. And this is all in the name of religion. This is all in the name of trying to get right with God, trying to find God. Human efforts, my friends, human efforts, they fail. And so my recommendation is this. Human efforts, stop it. We need to surrender to God. Both the bad, and it's easy for us, especially as young Christians, this is our maturity, to surrender the bad. I don't like this in me, God. I sin, it's bad, I don't like it. So we surrender that easily to God. But we also got to surrender the good to God as well. You know, the like... Well, I'm trying really hard to do good here, God. Well, that goodness, that righteousness, or self-righteousness needs to be surrendered as well. We just need to surrender to God. Just stop it and surrender to God. Say, God, you know what? I fail. I do well. I do well sometimes and I fail and it drives me nuts. You know what? Paul dealt with it as well and we're going to see how Paul dealt with it in just a moment. So let's go into the next slide. So here's a great question. Jesus is going to ask them a great question. First of all, he, he, he insults them and I guess Jesus can get away with it. You snakes, you brought of vipers. That's nasty, okay? It's just nasty, Jesus. What are you thinking? But you know what? It's true. And you know what? I'm a, I'm a snake as well. What is he calling them? He's calling them vicious sinners. Yeah, they are vicious sinners, but guess what? So am I. So are you. I hate to break it to you. I know you didn't want to come to church to hear the fact that you're a snake. But you know what? We are. Cornerstone's a brood of vipers. But you know what? We're saved. And we're going to talk about what that means. But if we try like the Pharisees, like the religious people, to do it on our own standard, our own, stand on our own two feet, we're going to fail. We're going to fall. So vicious sinners, again, not too dissimilar from anywhere else in the world. 
if we're really honest. So the question's asked, how will you escape? How will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, most times I think when we read these verses, we're very self-righteous about it. And we look at them and go, yes, this is Jesus dealing with those Pharisees. And yes, they're going to hell. Bad, bad people. But you know what? How do you and I answer these questions? How do you and I answer the how do we escape being condemned to hell? That's an honest question. If hell's a real problem and is really there, then how do we avoid it? What do we do? And each one of us have a way of answering this question. I thought of three questions, three ways of different ways of answering it. And, and I probably, I think the most common question answer to this question, I hate to say it, is probably the shrug. I don't know. I just wait till we get there. Because we don't know. We don't handle these things. But this is a serious question that we all need to handle and we all need to deal with. And some might answer by saying, well, I'll just, I'm just really good. I'm really good. I really love God really hard with my heart. And I really have a lot of faith. And I, and I, I have so much faith that the veins in my head start popping out because I'm just so full of faith. And that's how I'll get to heaven. So that's how you get to heaven? Next slide. Here's the answer. The real answer, in my opinion. You can't get, you can't. You cannot escape condemnation. You cannot. And notice I highlighted and bolded the word you. <laughs> people have tried that's what the Old Testament's all about the Old Testament's all about people who tried to, to, to make things right by their own means their own ways their own methods their own techniques and even the law as we see time and time again through both the Old and through the New Testament is, is the law all it does is it shows you how miserable you are and how you need to be forgiven and you need the grace of God but how, how, how does God's grace touch us how does God's mercy touch us God can have pity upon us, but he needed to do something very, very important to actually touch us with his grace and touch us with his mercy. And that's the cross of Christ. So you cannot do it. No, not by yourself. And Romans 3, 9 to 20 makes that very clear. What shall we conclude then? This is him talking about being condemned. Very similar context. What shall we conclude then? Do we? And here, he's, this is Paul, a very righteous guy. Talking to the church in Romans. So it's very similar. Now, I don't think I'm a righteous guy, by the way. But it's very similar to kind of discussion that's going on here in Cornerstone this morning. This is Paul talking to the church in Romans. So he's saying we. And he's not talking about we, the bad people. He's talking about we, the good people as well. He's talking about we, the, the genuine us type of situation. Yeah. Do we have an advantage? Not at all. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike are all under the power of sin. So I don't care what group, what nationality, what your sex, anything, your, 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 how rich or how poor you are, none of these things matter. We're all, 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 that includes us, you and me, all under the power of sin. That's not nice. It is written, and by the way, I wish Paul would end here, but no, he, he has to use some commentaries. He has to use some Old Testament references here. And I put the bibliography on the bottom here if you want to take note. Most of them come from the Psalms, but a few come from Ecclesiastes and also from Isaiah. And this is what he says. This is his putting together of these verses. Of these, so these are our, the, the, the Bible of the Bible, the Bible of the time, if you will. These are the Old Testament references. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands Again, when we read this, what do we think? We think, yeah, that's right for them, but not for me. But this has got to be for us as well, because he's talking about no one. And he's talking about no one who understands, not even one. There is, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And this is why our prayers work like what we are, pray, and why we have to be encouraged to pray, and we encouraged to fellowship, encouraged to worship God, because we, we generally don't do it on our own. We have to discipline ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We have to discipline ourselves. I need to pray. I need to worship God because it's hard to do it. Human nature resists God because of the flesh. 
But we have to, to, to discipline ourselves in spiritual things. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ouch, Paul. Really, really, really ouch. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Okay, so that's, that's a problem. If we're under the law, if we try to do things according to a set of rules, yeah, by living really good or, or in avoiding really, really bad things, then we're under the law. That's what legalism does. It says, I'm going to do things according to a set of rules, so I'm going to do this and do this and do that and not do this and not do that. That is what the law is. That's what the law is. And if you're under the law, then you're going to be silenced at the end of the day and held accountable to God. And I hate to say it, this is human nature. This is, this is also, this is a part of growing up and being mature in Christ. This is human nature. I think of my son. And as a parent, and as other parents here, we know that we have young children. They need help. They need help, right? I think of Miles all the time because his favorite word is, I can do it. I do it myself. I do it myself. And I think that's what religion is. I do it myself. I can do it. And I think that's part of human nature. We want to do things ourselves. We want to feel accomplished. And when, when he pulls it off, when Miles like, walks in, or does something himself, and he, he struts, and his shoulders do this, he's like, is everyone watching me? Because they want to feel proud about themselves and proud how they did it themselves. But you know what? When it comes to being right before God, there's none of that. Yesterday, we were taking, we, or Friday, we took him to the little park in air, and, uh, and we were on the little buggies. And I was driving with the buggy with Miles. Miles goes, I want to do it myself. So I said, okay, that's fine. So I got off the little buggy and let him crash 15 million different times. And I had to keep fixing it and picking it up. Because he couldn't do it. He thought he could do it. He tried to do it. And you know what? Good on him for trying. But I had to get on it. And so I made him feel like he did it himself. I got behind the buggy. I go, okay, Miles, push the button and I'll help you a little bit. And he was so chuffed at their end. He's like, I did it. But really, he didn't do it. I did it for him. And that's like us with God. We try so hard to do it. We try to run away. No, 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 God, get off my, my buggy. I want to do it myself. Get off my quad. I want to do it myself. And we resist it. And that's miserable. Because we keep crashing. We keep messing up. Why do we keep crashing? Why do we keep messing up? Because we can't do it ourselves. We need to surrender to God and let him drive the buggy for us. Let him drive the quad for us and just enjoy that presence. A father loves. I love Miles. I want to be there for him. I want to help him out. And God wants to be there for us. He wants to help us out. He wants to be there to hold on. We need to cling on to him and carry on to him. And this is very similar. And this is part of maturity, isn't it? To just say, okay, yeah, God, I need you really bad right now. Next slide, please. So the answer is this. You still can't do it. You still can't. Romans 7, 21. Now, I want to make this perfectly clear. This is Paul speaking here. Okay, Paul's a pretty righteous dude, in my opinion. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. And the New Testament is God's word. This is Paul speaking here. So I, okay, this is first person singular, first person singular, I. So I find this law at work, okay, this is his commentation upon himself. This is called self-reflection. Although I, again, first person singular, talking about himself, I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. Come on, be honest, guys. You know this happens. You know when you want to do good, you, you know that the temptations are there. You know it. It happens to all of us. It happens to Paul, certainly. It happens to me, and I guarantee it happens to you as well. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want, to, I want to do these good things, and I don't want to avoid these bad things. That's what I really want to do. And I think we're all kind of the same way. I think that's our struggles. It's like Miles. He wants to do it himself, and he tries so hard, and then he starts to cry when he can't and keeps falling, and then, you know. But I see another law at work in me, raging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. And he concludes by saying, what a wretched man am I. I almost wanted to get a t-shirt that says this. What a wretched man am I. Again, this is not very popular Christian teachings. These, these, they, they aren't. They aren't popular. And I don't like talking about them either because they do seem a bit depressing. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And that's the bottom line. We try, we fail. That's what religion does. All religion promises at the end of the day is wretchedness. All religion promises at the end of the day is, is this question. Who will actually truly rescue me from this body which is subject to death? And so I hate to say it, but I kind of feel like that little guy on the corner there. Oh boy, now I'm really depressed. And you guys know how I'm prone to depression. So doing these verses, do I struggle with them. But also, at the end of the day, it gives me so much relief. It gives me so much relief. Because when I stop trying, God wins out. When I am weak, God is strong. You know what I'm saying? And so I get really weak. And I go, this is really depressing, God. I thought, the, I, thought, I thought the gospel was supposed to be good news. And you know what? It is. Because there's the next slide. <laughs> Out of the darkness comes the light. And here's the answer. Christ can. Christ can. Christians, brothers and sisters, this is Christianity 101. And it's something I think we need to really digest. And I think it's something that needs to be said and needs to be practiced. So easily we forget and we start doing things on our own. Realizing and forgetting that God is the one who does it all, really. And we get to take advantage, the beautiful advantage of being filled with the Spirit, having new life, being changed, being rescued. Oh, what a wonderful thing. But it's God who does it. That's the Pharisees who try to do it on their own. It's the Christian who surrenders to Christ. And it says in Romans 7, 2, 5, this is the completion of, the, of this thought we just started here. Thanks be to God. So who will rescue me? Who will rescue Paul? Who will rescue the church in Rome? Who will rescue the church, people, individuals, and cornerstone? God will. Not me, not yourselves, but God. Thanks be to God who delivers me. How does he deliver you? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, these are Paul's words here. This is him moving from chapter 7 to chapter 8. So then I myself find that I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So by himself, he's a slave. With Christ, here's the conclusion. By yourself, your efforts, and your trying, your attempts, a slave. But thanks to God, there is a solution, and that's his conclusion, which is in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So the question I asked earlier is, how do you escape from the condemnation? You cannot escape from the condemnation of hell. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no place for you in hell. You don't fit in hell because Christ is all over you. You surrender to Christ. Please surrender to Christ. Realize that you are a surrender to Christ. There's no, if you are in Christ Jesus, then there is no condemnation. So the question is irrelevant. Right? You, if, if there is condemnation, you can't escape it. But because of Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because 
Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That thing that bothers you so badly, that weight you, 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 you decide to carry around and you obsess about, that, that law of sin and death, Jesus Christ has set you free from that. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. See, law, flesh, flesh can't do it, it's too weak. God did. When we are weak, God is strong. God did by sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And that's the issue. That's how it's possible. This is how it is possible. It is through this offering, this sin offering, the actual living son of God. Do you realize it's not you who who makes yourself saved? It is God through Christ that makes you saved. He's a sin offering, giving for our behalf. Now, let's complete the thought that we looked at earlier in Romans 3. This is the completion of that thought earlier in Romans 3. And I'm glad that he concludes it here. But now apart from the law, so forget about the law of righteousness, forget about that law. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So let's put that law away. The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. But ironically, the law, and by law here he's talking about the words, the Old Testament that we have in our laps today. The word, Moses, you know, all, and the prophets, yeah? They're, they're scriptures, right? They testify to a greater standard of righteousness. And that's Christ. Christ, remember when, when we did Easter, we were talking about how the road to Emmaus, how those disciples, Jesus went through all of the law, all of the Old Testament and said, this is about me. This is about Christ. This is about his death and his sacrifice. This is all about Christ. And it is. So we get caught up in the details of the law. But the reality is it's all about, not about us, it's about Christ. The righteousness is given through faith. Now, another way we could, this is, is, is translated, is through the faithfulness of. So through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. So because of his faith, because of what he has done, because he submits the cross, we who believe benefit. The righteousness given through faith in Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, too, for the benefit of those who, that's you and I, I hope, who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presents Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Again, the idea of being a sacrifice given to rescue the people, his people, the church. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be saved by faith. Next slide, please. So, stop resisting. Now, bear in mind, I might be talking to you here, but my mind was about the Pharisees. (laughs) Because I'm thinking, how was Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees at the time? Yeah, Stop resisting, guys, and start listening to the good news. Matthew 23, 34, 38. And this is back in Matthew. So this is our text for this morning. Therefore, I am sending you prophets. See, before he talked about how the prophets were sent and they were killed. And you have Jesus, who is the great prophet, the Messiah, who will be killed. But it's all right because he needs to, because he's the the, the sacrifice. He needs to die. But that's not going to end. There are going to be others after him who are prophets, sages in the NIV, which is probably better translated, because sages to me sounds like a magician, more or less should be translated into a wise person. The word is sophos, 
or safas rather, safas, which means a wise, wise, wise person and teachers. So he's going to send these prophets, sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel. And I'm not going to talk much about him today because Stuart already did weeks ago. Okay, so Abel, one of the first, in fact, the first martyr in their Bible, the, you know, their Old Testament, Septuagint Bibles, whatever, their scriptures, the first martyrs, Abel, the righteous blood, to the last bit of righteous blood, the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, so he's talking about all the bloodshed, of the righteous people by their own kind. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. And then look again at this lamenting that how God's heart, how Christ's heart breaks for his people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you or your children together as hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you are not willing. Again, I think of this like I think of my own sons. How they stubborn they are. How rebellious they are. I just, I'm just here to help you. I want to care for you. I want to share the right way. But you kick, you fight, you resist me. Why? And so I see the very similar to this. God's looking down on his people, and specifically here in Jerusalem. And how he, what he intended to be such a good situation has become such a bad situation because of their rebellion against him. You kill the prophets. You stone those who I've sent to you. I'm trying to talk to you. I'm trying to help you. And you just resist me. You kill my prophets. You stone them. I just want to love on you. I just want to care for you. I want to help you. I want to be here. I want to, I want to rescue you. But you're not willing. Uh, let's look at two Old Testament um, occurrences of Zechariah in the next slide. The first one, um, again, is likely that this is the Zechariah that Jesus is talking about here. It says, you know, in the, the, the Old Testament, you know, um, uh, minor prophet Zechariah, you know, this is what it says in Zechariah 1, 1 as it introduces the, the, the prophet, the writer of the prophecy here. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah. So by name, the son of, of Ido, no relation to Dido. I've been saving that joke. I'm so glad it worked. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me. Look at the message. It's very similar. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom early the prophets proclaim. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but would not listen or pay attention. So very similar context prophets speaking, people not listening. Here's another example. Now, this is a little bit more controversial because this is Zechariah, the son of Jehodiah, which may be his grandfather of the same person. But the reason why many commentators think this is the same person is because of, the, um, because of what happens here, is exactly how Jesus described it. Remember how Jesus described how he was martyred in the courts of the temple? Well, that's exactly what happened to this. And this is the last Proper in Second Chronicles twenty-four, the last proper martyr. Okay, so that's what we think is could be him, but maybe his his relation here is to a grandfather instead of his father. But let's read it. All the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testify against them, they would not listen. 
Then the Spirit of God came to Zechariah, son of Jehodiah, the priest. He stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. <laughs> Who do you think you're fooling? Do not disobey God's commands. You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they plotted. They don't like this. They don't like this news. This is bad news. They, so they plotted against him. Again, more plotting, more killing, more bloodshed. And by the order of the king, even by the order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father Jehodiah had shown him, but killed his son, who said, as he laid dying, may the Lord see this and call you to account. Okay, that was a lot that we covered today in just a short amount of scriptures, and I apologize for that, but I hope it really did encourage you today. I want to end this last slide, and this is kind of just a little encouragement. As I went through and I read these verses, what stuck out to me as like, you know, the, the, the crucial bits of scriptures, you know, they're all very, very, very important, is this, where he says, therefore I'm sending you prophets. That's the church, isn't it us? He says, I'm going to send. After he dies, I'm going to keep sending and sending and sending. That's the church. We're disciples. He just told his disciples to go out and make disciples. So that's us. Therefore, I am sending you prophets. We are God's church people. We are the body of Christ, the voice of God in a dying world. So prophets, speak out God's word and don't be silenced. Yeah? Sages or wise people. We're the wise guys and wise gals of God. Right? We're the church. It says here, the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. Remember those verses earlier read that said that there was no fear, and so they didn't know God. You see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to know, you need to fear the Lord. We're God's church. We're God's people. Wise people, help those around you if you can, if they're willing to let you. <laughs> yeah? If people are willing to let you, if there's an opportunity, do good. Always seek an opportunity to do good, to help others. And teachers, Okay? We are God's church, the ones who point people to Christ. Remember we talked about teachers weeks ago. A good teacher doesn't get in the way, but points to Christ. That's what we ought to be doing, yeah? Let's continue with faithfulness, with strong hearts, with compassion, with the spirit-filled lives, with the confidence of knowing God. Let's point people to Christ. Uh, they need to know the way. People need to know the way. And the way is... Because many, many, many people are trying so hard on their own to, to figure out things, to try to figure, find God. But let's just show them the real way, the way, the truth, the light is through Christ. He's the only way. So we need to point people to Christ. Yeah.